Ever get the feeling that someone is watching you? It's natural. I mean, we've all experienced it. And usually it just lasts a moment, as when someone across the street stares before they move on. But what if the feeling that someone was watching you was persistent? And what if that unease was coming from your mobile device? In early September 2021, the Federal Trade Commission in the United States banned an app called SpyPhone and its CEO, Scott Zuckerman, from operating in the surveillance industry. The FTC claims that SpyPhone secretly harvested and shared data on people's physical movements, phone use, online activities through a hidden hack. It says that SpyPhone sold real-time access to that information, which could have enabled domestic abusers and stalkers to track their targets. Some of those who bought the spyware were allegedly able to see live locations of the devices, view the target's emails, photos, web browsing, history, text messages, video calls, etc. So here's the thing. Spyphone is not an isolated incident. There are literally dozens of other examples, apps that haven't yet been flagged as such, but do the same thing. Worse, stalkerware is just the tip of the iceberg. There are other ways for abusive partners to use technology to gaslight or even physically harm someone. In a moment, we'll hear from two hackers who spoke at Black Hat USA 2021. It's an important topic with real human consequences, so I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing something that's uncomfortable for a lot of people, the use of technology to spy on loved ones, and the responsibility of the technology vendors to disclose, if not even consider, how the features and services they provide might be misused and hurt others. Technology and how people use it is the subject of a lot of discussion. I'm interested in how technology developed one way is used by people in another. For example, the way mobile phone pings the local cell tower are used by the transportation departments to report traffic conditions on major roads and highways. But what about the unintended uses of technology? That doesn't get discussed as much. In this episode, we're going to talk about two terms in particular. Intimate partner violence, or IPV, is akin to domestic abuse, where someone you live with may be causing emotional or physical violence. Then there's the broader issue of technology-facilitated abuse, in which a device, such as a smart device in a home, or an application on a mobile device, can be used to inflict emotional or even physical harm. Both involve people getting hurt, and both involve technology. Currently, there's little guidance around this. Fortunately, there are those in the InfoSec world who are actively looking at the subject and speaking out at conferences such as Black Hat. My name is Lodrina Cherney. I'm a principal on the security team at Cyber Reason, and I'm also a digital forensics instructor at the SANS Institute. I'm Martijn Groten. Uh, I am uh, a coordinator at the Coalition Against Alcohol. 
Ludrina and Martheim presented a talk in a very important time slot, the 10 a.m. slot immediately following the opening keynote speech at Black Hat. The name of this talk at Black Hat this year is a survivor-centric, trauma-informed approach to stalkerware. And on that first day of Black Hat, not everybody was impressed. A celebrity researcher tweeted that he didn't think the human factor talks such as Martheim's and Ludrina's should even be presented at Black Hat. The researcher quickly apologized, but the fact that someone so well-known tweeted it exposed something that Martheim has been saying for a while on Twitter. Security is a social science with a small technical component, and I think we forget that. I think we, as a community as a whole, we forget that. I think we value technical knowledge very, very high compared to an understanding of how organizations and people work. I think that's actually far more important. So I would say it's it's the, the human factor talks uh, at conferences like Black Hat that are the most important ones. I mean, I, I, I agree that, you know, there's some technical research presented at Black Hat that is useful, that, that helps the community further. That's also important. But I think in the end, it, it's just far less important of us having a good understanding of why people and organizations do the things they do, or in this case, don't do the things that we think they should be doing. If the human factor is so important, then why haven't we seen more talks on the social science aspect of security? My personal motivation for spinning to Black Hat in particular was that I think that if you are a technology expert, a security expert, and you're going to do some work on stalkware because someone contacts you about something they think they have on their phone, and all you bring is your technical knowledge, that I think it's very likely to go wrong because this is not just, or this is not a technical problem. It's a, it's a problem of abuse. And I think it's important that people treat it as such. And I wanted to, uh, I personally wanted to make that point in a, in a 25 minutes Black Hat presentation. Part of that talk focused on the fact that there are InfoSec people, hackers, openly working to address this problem. On the topic of stalkerware and technologically facilitated abuse, there's quite a few people who've done amazing work in this space. Uh, just two of many who come to mind are Eva Galperin at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Tara Hairston at the Coalition Against Stalkerware. And uh, the Coalition Against Stalkerware is really this great organization that uh, builds a network of corporations like Cyber Reason, uh, like others, including Kaspersky, who's done a lot of work in this space, along with organizations that are fighting domestic violence, that are fighting technologically facilitated abuse, and uh, other nonprofits and educational institutions. So let's first ground ourselves in a common definition of what is and what is not stalkerware. One of the greatest things that I think the Coalition Against Stalkerware has done is really defined what stalkerware is. Um, it's something that a lot of people have this sneaking suspicion about. But I think this definition is really important to think about. So according to the Coalition Against Stalkerware, stalkerware is software made directly to individuals that enables a remote user to monitor the activities on another user's device without that user's consent 
And without explicit, persistent notification to that user in a manner that may facilitate intimate partner surveillance, harassment, abuse, stalking, and or violence. This definition is precise and well-suited for apps that record or transmit data in secret. But what about IoT devices? What about social media? It seems that when only talking about stalkerware, we might be avoiding a larger problem. I mean, stalkerware in, in particular, uh, as, as a very narrow topic, is, is part of a much broader topic, which is called technology abuse, which is the use of technology in intimate partner violence, uh, abusive relationships of some kind. There's been quite a bit of attention of stalkerware within the tech community, uh, within the security community. Uh, within it. And it's partly because I think people can relate to it. I mean, I've done work with directly with abuse survivors and the issues that they face, the technologies that they face are often far more mundane and uh, far less technical than something like stalkerware. But stalkerware is something that people can relate to because it's malware and we understand malware or, or we think we do. But yeah, and I think that's uh, that's partly why there's so much attention that stalkerware is is a form of, uh, of abuse. And if it happens in a... In a partner relationship, which usually does, and it's a form of intimate partner abuse. We, and that's that's a large we, quite a big group of people, have been working on stalkerware for at least two years and have been trying to uh, raise awareness, uh, including uh, among uh, the security community and other groups, but in this particular case, the security community. To further define this, let's be clear about how you get stalkerware. You might think, for example, that you might be targeted from afar, that somebody remotely installed this on your mobile phone. Generally, when we talk about stalkerware or anything actually being installed on a device like this, it's typically going to be some kind of physical access. Physical access means the abuser has access to the device. So that person either works with you, lives with you, or otherwise has access it doesn't take leet hacking skills. It also means that just about anyone can do this, download the stalkerware onto another device. One of the points in our talk is that, in general, this isn't going to be some novel zero-day exploit. Um, you don't need to have hacker or criminal connections. You don't need to be on the dark web. Um, this could be something as simple as somebody having physical access to your device to be able to put uh, these applications on there. That said, Apple recently patched a no-click vulnerability that, when sent a text message, could install listening capabilities on your iPhone. Yeah, but aren't there examples of stalkerware that didn't require physical contact with the device? Um, I answer with a qualified no. Uh, no, there isn't, except in limited cases. The, the bar for this is, is, is a lot higher. You need to go. The price is a lot higher. You either need to pay someone a lot of money to do this, or you need to have still pay quite a bit of money and have very good technical skills, uh, which may, means it's, it's, you can simply exclude it for most. There are extreme exceptions to this, of course. If someone's ex-partner, and a first case like this, is active somewhat in, in say, organized crime, and if these things happen, that would be something to consider. But in general, uh, I would rule it out. And I think it's important to rule this out because if you believe that someone uh, could uh, could hack your advisor remotely, there's 
basically no feeling of, of safety. And I think it's important to, for people uh, to be safe, but also to feel safe. And I should also say that uh, this, when it does happen, and again, it's extremely, extremely rare, when it does happen, uh, it almost always involves some kind of social engineering. There's also Pegasus, a type of surveillance software created by NSO, an Israeli security company. In this episode, we're not talking about Pegasus, which has been sold to nation states and has been used by some nation states to target journalists, human rights workers, and political opposition. We're not talking about external threats such as Pegasus. We're talking about internal threats that come from inside the house. Probably not relevant for your audience because I think they, they probably have some technical understanding, but there, there is a belief among many people that you can hack a phone through their phone number or something like that, and that's simply not possible. Like, if I have your phone number, uh, I can't hack your phone. Um, unless, you know, unless I have a million dollars, I can, can hire like NSO Group to do that. But yeah, so um, you can't really, uh, in general, the answer is no, people shouldn't worry about this. There seems perhaps a simple way to define technologically facilitated abuse apart from legitimate services and apps that we use. Consent. Did you, as the product owner, understand and give consent to the scope of which the product or app will do? And does that product or app periodically notify you that it may be recording what you say or do? Consent in monitoring is where it all starts. So one of the definitions in that uh, definition of stalkerware, one of the terms in that description of what stalkerware is, uh, talked about there is no explicit persistent notification to that user. And that's so important because somebody who is an abuser who is trying to control somebody, should they have access to installing this kind of software well, clicking once on install on some kind of pop-up that says, do you allow your location to be monitored? Do you allow SMS and all of these things to be uh, accessed by this device? Clicking on that once does not mean that the user of that device who is using it, who is going out in the world, has consented to all of their activity being recorded and reported to somebody else. So, again, it's outside of um, anything we can cover in this podcast, uh, but really consent is uh, one of the really big issues here. And without that consent from the user, from the person being monitored, that's one of the key features of stalkerware. That's a gray area with the Internet of Things. Sometimes you consent once at installation, and then you forget that something is actively listening to your conversation, wanting you to say the magic word to turn on the TV or turn off the lights or order something online. But what is it doing in the meantime? Um, the most obvious one, I think, is this, and again, that's the thing that people can relate to, are cameras that can be remotely controlled. You know, cameras that people install in their homes or but maybe a, a partner, one people on relationship installs in someone's home to monitor the home when they're away. But of course, if someone can monitor this remotely, say the same partner after the relationship uh, has ended, can still monitor these things remotely, then it becomes a form of abuse. So that's that's the thing people can relate to. But 
because because we understand privacy. But there are also instances where an abusive partner or ex-partner uh, was able to remotely control the lights or the thermostat within a house, uh, using that only to show they have power over someone. Because uh, a lot of abuse is about power. So there, there's no obvious security issue. Like you can't do any harm in a traditional security sense by by turning on the power, but you can do a lot of emotional harm. And then there's the kids who really don't know any better. Another gray area. Your ex gives your child a toy that can call out. Maybe to the ex directly, or if the toy doesn't explicitly say it can call out, then maybe the ex can go to a site and listen in on conversations in the home where the child now lives. Chances are the toy is not informing the child or the parent that any of this activity is happening. There's no notification of consent. Some smart toys have now that, that, that children get, they have microphones, sometimes mm-hmm. cameras uh, as part of them. And these sometimes can be controlled remotely. And something that I know has happened sometimes is that an abusive partner uh, gives these these toys as a present to share children. And children use them. This is a way they can monitor remotely. Again, I should say most abuse is far more mundane than this. This is like stalkware. Most abuse is far more mundane, even if it seems technical, it's often not particularly technical. But yeah, IoT abuse does happen, and it's something that we should be aware of, and I think IoT manufacturers should be aware of. What about the parents who just want to monitor their children's internet use? There are legitimate apps for that, right? The most important thing is is that uh, if a parent wants to monitor a child, then they should not be hidden from the child. The child should get constant notification on their phone, say that hey, this phone is being monitored. That's that's okay. It's, I think it's a normal situation that a, a ten year old or twelve year old knows that their parents are are monitoring them, and there's a point in in their life where this stops being okay, and it's that, that makes it a complex issue. But if for young children, I think that's that's okay. But at least if you use monitoring software uh, that is parent control software that that is clearly visible on the device, then the child knows it. And even if a child is deems themselves too old for, for this kind of thing to happen, they can they know at least that their phone is being monitored and they can maybe talk to a friend privately um, while leaving the phone somewhere else. Uh, or just do not censor the message on the phone that someone is at least aware of it. And stalkerware, uh, even though a lot of stalkerware, uh, if you go to the to the website where these things are sold, they they claim that this is for parental monitoring. They emphasize the stealthiness. They emphasize that it's hidden on the device. And I don't think there's any reason why why parental control software should be hidden. And as you say, it's not just my opinion. Uh, we together in the coalition against stalkerware, we wrote the definition of stalkerware. And the important points, and then Lodrina mentioned this in, in our talk, are that it's that has persistent uh, notif- notification of the software being, or oh, sorry, of the software being active on the device. If that's the case, then it's not stalkerware. Given that we have a reasonably good model of stalkerware, it seems to me that the app stores could do so much more. I mean, can't they filter out or at least force vendors to disclose that certain activities from these apps might be considered stalkerware? Yeah, there's definitely a potential there, um, with all the usual caveats, including the, the controversy around Apple. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend tech installing new monitoring uh, onto devices. I think that that's creepy and it does a lot of harm. Tech companies see quite a bit already, and they should be able to have 
some understanding of what's going on. It's uh, it's something you have to be very careful with, though, because I'm not sure if they can always be certain that it's talk-aware and giving a... Um, even if it's just a warning, I think a false positive can be very harmful. You know, if you suddenly get a message that maybe your maybe a partner or ex partner is monitoring your um, your device, uh, your phone, that's that can be very very intimidating, uh, traumatizing. So yeah, um, again, I would recommend if Apple and Google etc are listening, like uh, make sure you keep conversations going, which I know are already happening with, with people uh, working in the in the anti abuse space. So stalkerware remains very much caveat emptor, or buyer beware. It's hard for the tech giants to screen against them. The stalkerware apps will always have lawyers who will wordsmith things in such a way that it appears to all be a gray area. There are some conversations going on, on around that. Um, Google has um, banned uh, stalkerware from being advertised using Google Ads. In practice, I've not seen a lot of a lot of success there. It's kind of a cat and mouse game because you know, for me, it's easy to say yeah, these companies are bad and they shouldn't. But you know, they also have lawyers, and they their website is, is written very carefully to make at least appear that it's that it's legitimate what's happening. So it's probably not as simple as blocking them off. As much as I would personally like to uh, for Google and, and other uh, ad brokers to do more. Um, and, and I'm sure they, they can do more, but it's yeah, it's not as simple as, okay, we, we ban it today and then it stops happening. I mean, they, they try otherwise. So. One of the purposes of their talk at Black Hat was to open the discussion in the security community and get technical people talking about stalkerware. There's a recognition that software engineers can be part of the solution. For example, software engineers now include accessibility features so that people with disabilities can use and benefit from their work. Perhaps software engineers can play a role in designing more safeguards against surreptitious spying. Exactly. That, that is, um, that's very important. And I think these two are possibly somewhat linked even. Is, is our technology accessible? And um to build this on just like security you know like make sure these things are built on right from the start and not a fix later on but yeah no it is definitely something that engineers should consider uh the, the the human impact of any device uh or any piece of software that, that they use that yeah could this be um could this be abused in in an ipv situation for the vast majority of people in attendance or maybe who are listening to this podcast, um, there might be people who are in product uh, organizations. And what I would challenge you to do in those organizations is think about what are some of the unintended uses of your software. So um, I've seen this put a number of different ways um, my friend C. Todd Lombardo, who uh, does a lot of writing around product management and product development, uh, said very succinctly, who does your product hurt? That's a really powerful statement. We've seen early examples of this, where landlords with IoT-enabled furnaces and air conditioning have changed the settings on tenants who are behind in their rent. What if we extrapolate that out? What if a single app cut off your access to social media or work simply because a former partner wanted some form of revenge? Or if all of your Facebook posts ended up in the hands of a political operative who could further target you 
with their messages. That really happened with Facebook. In reaction to this, in 2018, Aaron Z. Lewis, a young designer, wrote in his Twitter feed, in light of the latest Facebook scandal, here's my proposal for replacing design sprints. Black Mirror Brainstorms. A workshop in which you create Black Mirror episodes. The plot must revolve around the misuse of your team's product. I like to think about that quite a bit. You know, um, not just who would be hurt, but uh, what if your product was used in a Black Mirror episode? Like, how dark would it get? What are those unintended um, unintended outcomes? And how could it be abused in ways that are not central to what you're trying to do? Some of the feedback that Lewis received on his tweet included the idea of Black Mirror brainstorms being pre-mortem, a technique used by some design teams to imagine everything that could go wrong in a project before it even starts. Another suggestion was traditional red team, blue team design experience with the black mirror brainstorm would create a red team with adversarial role, challenging the blue product team with mitigating the possible risks. What if you were in a black mirror episode or what if you were in the news for something that is not your main line of business for somebody unintentionally using your product the wrong way? These are some of the things I like to think about. My problem with technology is that every time Windows issues an update, uh, of course, I do the update. But then later, I have to go back to my privacy settings to see what Microsoft changed. Often, nothing has. But sometimes it's like, oh, hell no. I don't want all my data automatically saved to OneDrive. Or no, I don't want Microsoft listening to all my calls and text messages and emails. I shut all that off. And it seems like they creep back in at some point, which then I shut them off again. And it's not just Microsoft. The same with social media apps. I have to go through various settings to make sure that I'm not tagged without my permission, or in some cases, even block a person now and again. I know these situations go against the free and open flow of information that hackers and designers may have intended, but I also know there have been egregious abuses in the past. Um, I think I think everyone working in in security should understand. Everyone working in in, in anything should understand the impact uh, their work has on society in general and on vulnerable people in particular. I think in technology, one obvious group, not the only group, but one obvious group is IPv survivors, and I think there's a responsibility there to um, to at least understand the impact of our technology. I'm, I'm not saying that everyone should volunteer their time working on IPv issues, it would be great, but you know, there's other things in the world to, to focus on. But I think that there should be some awareness. If you, Lodrina uses the, the quote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, something like, you don't want your technology to be used in a movie script. And that's that's sort of, you know, and then you don't want your technology to be used in a, against uh, an abuse survivor. And, and it's the same with, you don't want your technology to be used by a government to spy on human rights activists. Yeah, that's that's a different, different, somewhat related topic that I'm also very passionate about. And you know, these things I think you should be um, aware of. And if you are in a team and you build a product and you think, yeah, we just don't have some understanding, like reach out and, and try to build contacts. And, and there's a lot of people working in this space. Um, and yeah, have a brainstorming session to say, hey, we have this prototype. Do you think someone can abuse this? 
In security, we talk a lot about threat models. There's the corporate threat model, which helps organizations determine what security services and tools are needed. And then there's the personal threat model. Everyone's threat model is different because either we have different skill sets, occupations, or life experiences. Threat modeling also applies to technologically facilitated abuse as well, and it's just as complex. It's not just the tech that needs to be considered. It's the whole environment that the survivor finds himself in. So while in the talk we do talk about threat modeling for the survivor here, um, it's something that we probably could spend a lot more time on if we had a longer time on stage or in this talk. Um, it's something that I've talked about uh, with a lot of either small businesses, completely separate from this, small businesses or some uh, student groups. And we talk about threat modeling as, you know, when you plan for, out for things, what is the worst thing you could see happening to you? Okay, now how are you going to mitigate this? And maybe that threat model that you created three years ago, maybe that is no longer valid today. Maybe it changes from day to day. People change. And by that, I don't mean that maybe the stalker won't stalk anymore. Hopefully, they stop stalking. But what I mean is that as we get more information, we change. We change the way we view our friends, our enemies, our world. And so our threat model, it needs to change as well. I'll answer this, but I want to make it clear that these answers kind of come from a paper by Karen Levy and Bruce Schneier that we linked the range in our talk. One thing to keep in mind is that uh, most security, uh, most of our security threat model is about the remote adversary, you know, a, a, a cyber criminal in, in a foreign country, something like that, or, or or even someone in a in a public Wi-Fi space or something like that. That's a, that's a bit rare, but people sometimes think about that. But it's different when the adversary lives in the same house and, and has physical access to the device. There is no definition of a perfectly healthy relationship. At least, I don't think such a model exists. But in the absence of that, there are near-perfect relationships with other people. And that's what I think most of us strive for. Sure, we had a fight, but fights too can be healthy. The absence of fighting in a relationship can certainly be unhealthy. It means that there are topics or situations that just aren't being discussed head-on, one-to-one with each other. And the other party might be harboring ill will or bad feelings about things that could be better addressed if they just talked about it out loud. This isn't to say that you shouldn't avoid all relationships. No, 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 not at all. Rather, you should enter into a relationship with open eyes. Another very important thing to keep in mind, uh, that's also from the paper, is that um, relationships change, like um, someone made in a relationship with someone and then they trust them and they may give them um, access to, uh, to, to a device, to, uh, to an account. That, that can be a good thing. I mean, having a, a backup person in case someone might, might die or something like that. I mean, that, that's not a bad, bad idea, but it should also be possible at any time to withdraw that. And should, people should be made aware uh, who else has access to, to something. I mean, that's, that's not uncommon in abuse. That, that, um, 
for example, uh, someone still had someone share Facebook passwords. It's not something I would recommend, but a lot of people do that in relationships. Um, and then uh, the relationship ends, and it turns out they never change their password. The ex still can read messages and stuff like that. So we focused a lot on device and apps, but there's also the social media component. For example, I've followed Martime for years as a security expert on Twitter. But I also know a few other things about him. The public things that he's chosen to share online, such as he lives in Greece, or that Martime and I both run marathons, so I could probably strike up an online conversation with him around that. In most cases, it would be harmless, even healthy to reach out to another person with a shared interest. I would assume Martime would look me up on Twitter and see who I am before continuing with any further detail. Or Martime could just lock down his account so that only a few people, the people he knows and trusts, can see his social media posts. So there are privacy settings, but do they really work? And how are they effective with stalkerware? It's a very good good question. I mean, yeah, tech abuse in general, uh, yeah, social media, privacy settings are very important and uh, are very complex, but most social media apps do uh, have pretty good privacy, uh, at least controls. I mean, we think the, the social media apps are invading our privacy uh, more than they should. Uh, I definitely think that. But for from a IPV point of view, their controls tend to be reasonable, but not always the right ones by default. So um, if this is a concern for you, go through all the social media apps you use, your your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, your uh, your TikTok. Uh, I mean, I recently installed TikTok for, for this reason to understand uh, its, its privacy controls. And they, they tend to be quite good. And, um, you know, you need to... Um, think what's all possible. For example, in, in Facebook, uh, you can stop people from tagging you. So it's not uncommon. Someone, an abusive relationship, they, it ends, but the two people still have common friends and they keep their profile very private so that the ex doesn't realize, but they go to a, to a party and a friend tags them and that gives you the partner information about, uh, about them. So for example, you mentioned running, like they may be in run together and someone is tagged as being part of that run without them giving, uh, uh, approving this being tagged. So that's, that's definitely something that people may want to turn off. There are innocent scenarios that you might find yourself in. They're subtle, like having your friends tag you on a photo, but then having someone else who might be threatening see that tag and somehow take action against you. Things like tagging others, they seem like a great idea at the time, but later, maybe not so. Yeah, no, it, it puts it on a personal threat model, but in this case, so I think like Facebook make it easier to do that to tag someone. So uh, even if you don't post an activity, uh, one of your Facebook friends may post an activity that you're involved with, and they tag you, and that it becomes all your friends know that you were there. That that may be fine for for most people in most situations, but probably isn't in, in uh, no definitely isn't in some cases, and that's why it's important to have these controls. As a general rule, there's quite a lot that you can control, uh, but the defaults are not always uh, the best from an IPv point of view. So how does personal threat models work with security people? I would think that we would be at maximum security level, given that we know too well what could go wrong. The reality is, is that we probably aren't doing everything that we advise. We can, in certain situations, let our defenses down a little bit. 
And we have to weigh those pros and cons when we do. I've mentioned already that survivors are going to have different threat models. Um, Myself, who I would like to consider, uh, you know, really adept security practitioner, I might do things in my life that um, other people would never think of. Uh, For example, I share my location with my husband. Um, Now, this is not something that uh, I woke up one day and said I was going to do. If you asked me a few years ago, would you just leave your location turned on and shared with somebody else, even somebody that I was married to for years? I, I would have thought you're crazy. But uh, it turns out there was one time when we were moving between two different houses, we were taking different vehicles, shuttling stuff back and forth all the time, and just really needed to know where each other were. Um, From that experience that lasted a couple days, um, as I commuted and did all these weird multimodal transportation things to deal with the traffic of Boston... I just left that location sharing on. And, um, you know, if you had asked me again a few years ago, is this something that you would do? Would you share your location with other people, even people in your family? I'd go, no, that's a horrible idea. Why would I turn that on? That can open the door to who knows where your dad is going. But in my circumstance... It's something that worked for me and has great utility to me. In Lodrina's case, there's an awareness. She knew what she was doing. She knew the person she was choosing to share her information with, and she weighed the pros and the cons. Most of us, however, don't ask all of these questions, or we don't ask enough. Most of us choose or side with convenience out of convenience. Why go through all the extra steps of locking down your apps and our devices, right? And there really is no one answer that fits every scenario. You have to work out each of these situations one by one. When I teach my forensics classes and uh, I, teach, um, I teach a Windows forensics class, in six days... Whenever my students ask me questions about this case or that scenario, I always say, it depends. You know, this answer is going to frustrate you, but it depends. Um, Just knowing this issue is not black and white. It really is many shades of gray. Um, You know, getting these ideas across, getting them out in the world, having these other conversations already feels like such a win. One area where women in particular find themselves trapped is that the man in the relationship typically owns all the property or has the bank accounts or has the credit rating. Maybe that's something they entered into unintentionally. In fact, it wasn't until the Equal Credit Opportunity Act of 1974 that women in the U.S. were able to get their own personal credit cards. From this, we can see both good scenarios where the couple today can share their accounts openly and bad examples where one person uses the shared account as leverage or as a means to spy on the other party. So finances should definitely influence one's personal threat model. 
financial, uh, yeah, banking and stuff is 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 very important, um, and it's it, it's very um, yeah. It, it, this is not trivial to develop uh, protocols for. Related to, but not always thought of as such, are mobile phone plans. You have to demonstrate all this financial stuff up front just to get a cellular plan. Also, it doesn't always make sense for everyone to have separate mobile plans. Family plans are far less expensive. But, again, if a person needs to leave an abusive relationship, how do they sever that connection in terms of technology and services? And there's some legislation happening in the U.S. at the moment uh, around shared phone plans. Um, it, it's often hard to escape a shared phone plan, and uh, people are working hard, uh, including members of Congress, uh, to make this easier uh, for someone to just escape a shared phone plan if they're in an abuse, abusive relationship. You might be thinking that all this advice is just common sense, or that there's probably some universal best practices that can be applied. But really, in reality, it's much more nuanced and complex. Abusive relationships are complex. They are, they are not continually abusive. People, there may be times someone says, okay, maybe he, he's changed. People have invested in a relationship. There's lots of reasons why people don't leave through these relationships. Um, and it may be that, uh, that, that something has changed. And it's, um, you know, it, if you don't work in security, this may seem, seem hard to understand because, you yeah, know, we're, we're so focused on the, the security and privacy in our minds. But for most people, you know, if, if your partner says, uh, oh, come on, uh, you can give me the password your phone uh, you trust me don't you i mean most people would do that and they would they would see not giving it as a way of, of not trusting someone um so this, this is how a lot of people have access to their partner's device these things are complicated uh, these relationships are complicated um and it's uh, i think that advice that just says uh, don't share your um um don't share your phone don't share your password with, with your your partner uh, just doesn't, uh, without acknowledging the complications, just isn't very helpful. There's another layer here that we haven't really talked about, in that there aren't easy prescriptive models to technologically facilitated abuse questions, nor can you apply the typical security best practices either. This might seem counterintuitive to a lot of technical folks, but some of the measures that we consider basic security hygiene things like set a unique password to a device, and then that is your password. Do not give it to anybody. Do not share it. You know, this doesn't work for people who are in these survivor situations. Um, If you are in a situation of intimate partner violence, domestic abuse, gender-based violence, um, you know, we're not just talking about somebody who's being physically hurt hit, that kind of thing. Uh, This can include things like financial abuse, uh, controlling behaviors of emotional abuse. And uh, it could be that somebody is in a situation that they do not feel empowered to leave or don't feel as safe to leave. And in that situation, um, just like uninstalling the spyware app can escalate abuse. Think about that. Just changing a password, or better yet, removing the affecting app, this could escalate into physical violence. It could enrage the abuser and threaten the survivor of that relationship. There are two main reasons why you may not want to remove it. The first is, as I mentioned, um, the abuse may escalate. 
um, and people may, I mean, someone will discover if they install software that, that it's removed because it stops working. And they may, they may, if they use software to control you, they may look for other ways to control you, and it may be worse. And the second reason is, is yeah, um, if you do want to bring uh, something to a court at some point, um, then uh, removing stalkerware removes evidence. So that's also something to keep in mind. Uh, and maybe a third reason that, that I've heard sometimes, um, it's also about evidence. Like sometimes people, you know, when the abuse is really put behind, you know, when the relationship is really uh, completely finished and then the contact is completely broken off, they sometimes someone just wants to know what happened back in uh, two summers ago when all this weird stuff happened on my phone. Um, for their own peace of mind, it may just be uh, be helpful uh, to for the stalker for for it not to be removed. But yeah, that depends on the individual situation. So again, the advice must be customized to the individual in that situation. Their threat model must include the possibility of escalation. Well, somebody who's in a vulnerable relationship who suddenly one day has a new phone password and won't give it to their abuser. If that is behavior that is different than what has been experienced in that relationship, frankly, it's just not something that's going to fly. So digging further into the idea of what is this very specific threat model, and I don't know how many people out there in our world in the tech space have thought about, wow, I might have friends, I might have colleagues who can't have a safe and private password to their own device, who can't have a private um, account on their computer. Um, Really opening people's minds to some of these concepts. Um, You know, in the 30 minutes that we have on stage, um, if we can open people's minds and educate them on some of these things that uh, survivors are experiencing... I would consider that a win. Beyond there being sheer technical solutions to stalkerware and technologically facilitated abuse, there are human beings. And by that, I mean there are organizations run by human beings that can help. One of the other important things to know about this situation is that there are resources out there to help people. There are domestic violence hotlines. Um, And even beyond the technical aspect, because some hotlines may be able to deal with technology more than others, I think the important thing to know is um, not only can these hotlines be useful if you are somebody who finds themselves as a survivor in these situations, they can also be helpful for people who might have friends in these situations or family members. Uh, And lastly, if somebody thinks that they themselves might be uh, performing abusive or controlling behaviors, oftentimes these hotlines can help or recommend who can help in those situations. Um, The biggest thing is really knowing that 
If you feel you are being surveilled, you're in an unsafe situation, uh, you are not alone. And there are resources out there that can help. There's CETA, C-E-T-A, which is part of, uh, which is the clinic and tech abuse is part of Cornell Tech, Cornell University in, in New York. Slight uh, disclaimer, I'm doing some volunteer work for them. But they have some great resources on their website with a lot of guides, like, on securing your Google account, your Facebook account, etc. Um, there are very good sites on tech abuse by NNEDV, for example, techsafety.org. Yeah, techsafety.org. And there are similar ones by Westnet in Australia and uh, Refuge in the UK. We have a website with resources, including links to the things that, that you mentioned. There is a, a very brief guide like, hey, I worry I have software. What should I do? Um, that we wrote uh, earlier this year with, with, with a lot of help from people from all aspects, from technology experts to uh, IPV advocates. Third-party organizations are great. They have experts. They have good advice. But what happens when your best friend confides in you, the local security expert? Or maybe you notice something that seems off in a friend's relationship before they even notice. I'm not a human factor expert, but if someone came to me in a situation and needed my help, what should I do? Well, I, I think and I think I mentioned this in, in the talk. If I've I've given talks on this subject in, in, in various settings, and, and people sometimes come to me afterwards and say, "Hey, I find it interesting, and uh, uh, I want to help." And uh, I'm very good at reverse engineering and stuff like that. I want to reverse engineer. Um, uh, stalker apps. It's always nice that people want to help, but I think the best you can do if you want to help is, is read up on, on intimate partner finance, read, read a book, uh, watch videos, uh, read websites from the likes of NNEDV uh, to understand how abuse works, to get a get some kind of understanding for things that may not be obvious, like the fact that someone often can't leave in a relationship even if they know it's abusive, even if they would like to leave, they can't for a number of reasons. True. If you want to get good at this, like anything else in security, you should probably read up on the subject or attend some workshops before even trying to help. Um, and these things need to become kind of intuition if you want to work in this place. If you're serious about helping out, Martime has some recommendations. There's a few things to keep in mind. I think the first thing to keep in mind is that make sure that at every step they control what what you do. Uh, so what happens? So if you do find if you do happen to find stalkerware, say you run an antivirus scan on the phone, uh, on, on iOS stalkerware is rare, but on Android where it, it's slightly more common, antivirus typically picks up software. So if you install an antivirus up, it detects it. Uh, they should, it's up to them to decide whether they actually want to remove it. Uh, because, and we mentioned this in our talk, um, abuse sometimes escalates when stalkerware is present and is removed. So it's important that people take this, keep this in mind. Um, the second thing to keep in mind is um, that uh, people often self-identify that they have stalkerware because they, they know they're in an abusive relationship. Uh, they've read about stalkerware because it's been in the news quite a bit, and they think, oh, that must be happening to me. Um, in practice, it's almost always, well, not all, it's usually something um, more, can more mundane, like a shared password or or just someone who occasionally has access to the device. You know, you don't need stalkerware to read someone's message if, you, if twice a week you can read them on the phone. 
So make sure your focus is, is, is broad, not narrow. For, uh, we shared some resources, some tech abuse, um, and, and keep this, this in mind. And uh, very importantly, understand that someone to whom this happens, uh, who is in, a, in an abusive relationship or was uh, in such a relationship, is often traumatized to some way. And this may um, reflect how they respond to you, um, which means that uh, sometimes these people can be extremely trusting. Like you're the one person who can solve all their problems or they, they, feel, they make you feel this way. Uh, sometimes people can be extremely distrustful. No matter how well you think you are helping someone out, always remember that there are professionals, there are experts out there. Um, and uh, that's both completely normal and that's something you need to keep in mind. I mean, you are dealing with someone who has some kind of um, trauma. I think that's, that's um, what you need to be aware of. Um, we shared some, some helpline numbers uh, in our talk that's primarily aimed for survivors. But if you are helping someone, even if you're only being asked about a technical help with a technical issue, but you're just not sure, like, is what I'm doing, is this really in their interest? Uh, should, what should I do? Uh, call these numbers and, and, and ask for advice. And traditional abuse organizations have come into the 21st century and now recognize the difficulties that technology can bring to any relationship. As somebody who has interacted with people in the domestic violence space, in the survivor support space, it's my impression that a lot of these organizations are getting better at dealing with technological issues. Certainly there are organizations at scale who do this work. NNEDV is one that we point people to in the talk. Uh, the Coalition Against Stalkerware does some work at the corporate level. There's also organizations like Operation Safe Escape, which is uh, an organization that helps people through the process of recovering from these abusive situations, um, helping people get safe in their devices. Whoa. So there are organizations that can help individual survivors of abuse clean up their devices so they can use them again. That's really good to know. That being said, um, it is really going to vary uh, potentially based on your geographic location, the help um, that is available to you. Um, and I'm speaking right now maybe to those people who are outside of the United States who maybe can't contact uh, an NEDV and their 1-800 hotline for advice who are really excellent. Um, if you are in a different geographic location where maybe resources in your language aren't available to you, where maybe your police department uh, doesn't understand that somebody tracking you on your phone is a physical safety issue. And, um, you know, we, we in our talk, by the way, mention uh, statistics on uh, domestic abuse according to the CDC. Which brings up another important fact of this being a health issue. You know, this is not only a safety issue, this is a health issue. Um, I, I just have to say, keep trying. You know, whether it is a support line, whether it is a police officer, whether it's a federal agency or a friend... Um, know that you are not alone. There are people who care. And... 
while really uh, in my mind I'm speaking to technologists, I also want to acknowledge that there might even be people in the room when I speak this week who are going through this situation and looking for help. So you're not alone. There is help out there. Intimate partner violence is very hard to discuss in public. And intimate partner abuse includes not just physical abuse, which others might see, but also emotional abuse, which others might not see. Part of our reticence in talking about all of this in public, I think, is that some of us simply don't want to know about it. And part of it is, I think, if some of us are open to hearing about it, a few of us might come to identify with it. And if we do, what's the next step? How do we get the support we need to get out of that situation and begin to heal? That's why talks given by Ladrina and Martime at Black Hat and other conferences, despite what celebrity security researchers might think, are so important in that they can at least break the ice and get more people, people in the security community, comfortable with admitting that these messy, sometimes ugly, interpersonal human situations exist. And perhaps by recognizing that, as we've heard, we can start to see how our technology might facilitate, even escalate that abuse. In the show notes, I've shared a resources link from Martime and Nadrina's presentation, or you can find it directly at lapsedordinary.net slash blackhat2021. I think it goes without saying that in security, it's always important to make sure technology, any technology, isn't used to hurt someone. That's exploitation that I think we can all work to end together. As I produced this episode, the United States government imposed fines on three individuals who were part of Project Raven, a story that Reuters news service first broke a few years ago about some former NSA individuals who went to work for the United Arab Emirates in order to spy on U.S. citizens. This case is an example of a very specific application of technologically facilitated abuse. And while in this episode we only talked about the more common, the more intimate abuses among domestic partners, these state-sponsored abuses are along the same spying and surveillance spectrum as stalkerware. I think the more light that we can shine on any of these surveillance abuses, either state-sponsored or domestic, the closer we'll be to ending technologically facilitated abuse in general. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I remain the do-no-harm-to-others Robert Famosi.